Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you. We ask that you guide and lead as we look at your word that is so special that you teach us your truth and, your, and what you would have us to do. And we just thank you for all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy 12, starting at verse 13. Take heed to yourself that you offer not your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of your, of your, your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Notwithstanding, you may kill and eat flesh in, the, in your gates, whatsoever your soul lusts after, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given in you, the unclean and the clean may, may eat thereof, as of the roebuck and of the heart. Only you shall not eat the blood, and you shall pour it upon the earth as water. So we're going to look at this. Remember last week we were talking about how when they went into the promised land, they were to destroy all the temple, all the te- all the temples, the uh, altars, the groves, all the places of idolatry worship, because in the idol worshiping they set up altars wherever they wanted to. And God is coming in here and He says, "When you come into your land, you shall not offer burnt offerings in all, and where basically wherever you want." And he, and He's getting them set up. He's, we're starting to see the rules for how they're going to live when they enter the promised land. Because remember, they've been 40 years wandering in the desert. Even though there's a large population of them, they all live pretty tightly, to, pretty tightly together uh, because they're setting up their camp and they need to be close together. And God is saying, when you get out, into your land, you're not going to start worshiping wherever you want to worship. When the country of Israel splits into two, with Solomon taking uh, Rehoboam taking the Rehoboam and Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam taking the the southern kingdom and Jeroboam taking the northern kingdom, the first thing Jeroboam does is he sets up golden calf worship, and his reason for it is. He doesn't want his people going to Jerusalem to worship God and maybe staying in Judah instead of coming back home. So he starts doing golden calf worship. And golden calf worship is going, would, would go from the time of Jeroboam all the way until they go into captivity in, in Syria. There would be other idols that come and go, but the golden calf worship stayed forever for the whole time that the northern kingdom was in existence. And he started it just so people wouldn't go to Jerusalem. And he made two temple, he made two altars, one right there near Jerusalem and the other one in Dan in the far north so people could go either way and make uh, sacrifices to the, his gods instead of going into Jerusalem. And God is saying, when you come into the promised land, there's going to be one place that you can place your offering. Now, as they've wandered for 40 years, there's been one place that they could do their offering, and that was in the tabernacle, which sat in the center of the tribes, so that it was easy to get to. As a matter of fact, if you remember in Exodus and Leviticus, when they were to kill an animal, they couldn't just kill the animal wherever they lived. They had to take it to the temple, have it killed there, have it properly drained of its blood, and then they could take it home and have, have meat for their dinner. So for 40 years, they've had a way of worshiping God and, and even getting their meat that was centered around the tabernacle. And God is basically telling them, you're getting ready to go into the promised land. And remember, the size of the promised land, if they ever had their whole land, which they only had under David and, and Solomon, was from the Mediterranean all the way to the Euphrates River, all the way down to Egypt, so they would have the entire of what we call the Middle East and more than the Middle East. They would have had Iraq and Iran, you know, all the way, almost all the way up there because they, they actually cross over the, the Euphrates. And all that desert area was what God promised them. Everywhere that Abraham's foot touched belonged to them. And they only had it during the time of, of, of David and Solomon. Other than that, they've never had all the land that they're supposed to have. But God said that when you get into that big land, 
you may be just a little bit too far away from Jerusalem. There wasn't Jerusalem at that time, but even if you set it in the dead center, you may be two or three days travel by, by walking or by, by uh, donkey, so it becomes very hard to kill all the meat at one location. So he's given them new rules, new rules when they get into the land. And it says, <clears throat> but in the place which the Lord your God shall choose from in one of your tribes, there shall you offer the burnt offerings and you shall do all that I command you. So he says, you're still going to worship in one place. Didn't say where it was going to be. He said, you're going to choose. Now we know that it ends up in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's right on that border for Benjamin and, and uh, Judah. So it makes a great place, and it's a good political place when David set it up because you had the two ruling houses, Benjamin, which Saul was from, and Judah, which David was from. And so they created this nice little buffer space saying that we're going to be real close to both. We're not going to pick one, one or the other of these tribes to set the capital in. But it's set for many, many years in Shiloh. When they first enter in the promised land, it goes to Shiloh and it stays there until David moves it to Jerusalem. And Shiloh is in the southern part of the kingdom. So if you lived all the way in Dan, you would not be able to go to the temple or the tabernacle at that time. You know, have your meat butchered off, drained, and go all the way back home and have your meat worth anything because it was too far a trip. So he's saying, I'm going to give you new rules, but you're still going to worship only in the tabernacle. You're not going to worship wherever you feel like worshiping. And this is something that if you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, she says, you Jews say that you must worship in, in Jerusalem. Our fathers say we worship on this mountain. What, what is true and what was Jesus' answer? There's coming a day when it won't matter. You'll worship in spirit and in truth because sacrifices were not going to be involved in the worship. And God has forbidden the sacrifice at anywhere but where the tabernacle or temple stands. And he says, you're going to, they're going to choose a place for the tabernacle to be set. It's going to, once it gets into the land, it's going to stay. It's going to be, be stationary. And he goes, notwithstanding, you may kill and eat flesh in your gates whatsoever your soul lusts after, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Okay, so he's saying no longer will you have to go to the temple. You can, you can go outside your own house and kill your animal. And he's going to tell you the only thing about it is that you uh, have to drain, it, drain the blood out of it. And then he goes, the clean and the unclean may eat thereof. And this is not talking about the meat. Okay, they're clean animals and unclean animals. This is talking about the people. Those who have touched a dead body are unclean. Those who have different uh, areas of uh, ceremonial uncleanness were unclean. Now, if you were unclean, you could not enter the tabernacle and later on the temple. So this was a problem. Your meat was, your meat was butchered at the, at the tabernacle and basically thrown on the fire and basically it was cooked. And so if you were unclean, you couldn't go in and partake because you could not enter into the tabernacle. And so he's saying, you get into the, you get into the promised land, the place of rest, you will, the unclean will even be able to eat the meat. And they would have some that could take off. Remember, we had the, the meal offering, which you could eat over two days, so that could come out, and they would get some. But in general, they could not eat meat because they were unclean. They couldn't go where it was killed. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, and the promised land represents our rest, our rest. And this is what Jesus has brought us into by dying on the cross and forgiving us of our sins. He has given us faith rest in him, which is a foreshadow of the rest we will have for all of eternity in heaven. But he says we're at rest. And this is one thing that sets Christianity apart is that we do rest. We don't have a bunch of rules and laws that we have to follow to please God. We are at rest. Jesus has completed it and he's given us a gift of rest. And this is 
When we can live in that rest, it's a wonderful place to be. We don't have to worry. We don't have anxiety. We're, because God is in control, he's given us our rest, and we are resting and able to just consume whatever it is that he sends our way. And it says you may eat the roebuck and, the, and, as, as, and as the heart. So he's given a couple animals that they were, they were clean animals. And these animals were clean, but they weren't sacrifice animals. Okay? Remember, there's certain animals that are clean to eat, but not clean for sacrifice. For sacrifice, you could, order, you could do a sheep, a goat, a bullock, uh, doves, pigeons if you were really poor, uh, turtle doves. And that was the extent of what you could, could offer as a sacrifice. And he's saying, here's a few things. You can eat these deer-like deer animals. They're, they're, they're clean, but you can't sacrifice them. So he's, they're opening up what's allowed to be eaten even at this point in time. And uh, we, we see that. And it says, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out upon the earth as water. And this has been God's recurring theme all the way through the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The blood, the life of the body is in the blood. It had to have been poured out. If it died, it had to be poured out or used in the sacrifice. And this is true to this day. The Jews do not eat any food that has blood in it. It has to hang and totally drain out. And what they'll do when they kill the animal, they have a very specific way they kill the animal. They have to cut the jugular vein uh, in the neck and then hang it because that will bleed out all the, the blood in the animal. And uh, that has to be done or the meat is not pure. And even, you know, even for those of us who like uh, our meat rare in our day and age, we're not eating blood. We're eating that substitute they put in it that makes it look like blood. Uh, there's very few meat cuts of meat that actually have blood in them anymore because it does not ship well. It does not store well. So they drain it because if it has the blood in it, it goes bad a lot quicker. And so for years they've drained the blood and nowadays they put this substance in it that makes it look like blood when it, when it comes out. It's a watery substance with a dye in it. So... Uh, <laughs> huh? I never saw that. It's, an, it's what they do now. But even in the old days, they drained them all, so it's. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it easier, easier for travel. Verse 17 You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your corn, or of your wine, or of your oil, or, or the first things of your herds, or of your flock, or any other vow that you vow, nor your free will offerings, or your heave offering in your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God shall choose, you and your sons and your daughter and your manservant and your, and your maidservant and the Levite that was within the gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you put your hand unto. Take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. So we're going to look at this. It says, He's allowing them to eat meat, to kill meat in their homes and to eat the meat. But he has some very strong restrictions. You may not eat within your gate the tithe, the 10%. Where did the 10% belong? It belonged to God. And if we remember from Leviticus, it, that part went to the Levites. Okay? The Levites had no part, no inheritance in the, in the country. So... They, in their little towns that they had, they had a little area around the town where they could have some small fields to grow some, from fruit, some fruits and vegetables. But their main source of income comes from the tithes and offerings that the people brought into the temple. And for the, in those days, most of your tithe and offerings was not in cash. You, you tithe the 10% of your grain. You tithe 10% of your flock. So these guys were getting food as well as money. And then if you remember in Leviticus, we studied that the Levites tithed 10% of what they received and gave it to the priest. And the priest tithed their 10% to the high priest. Okay. So you, each person in that position of authority was supported by the people in the in the in the 
in the local area. Paul, when he was talking to, to the, I think it was the Thessalonians, I can't remember, one of the churches, anyway, he says, I have not taken an offering from you, even though I could, as an apostle, as a, as a pastor, I could, I could have taken from you. But he says, I've taken from another church who's supporting me, even though I'm working with you. But he also later on said, don't muzzle the ox. You know, the, the, the laborer is worthy of their hire. So God is overall keeps going on. People, you take care of the leaders. It's your job to take care of the leaders while they take care of you. And so here he is. He says, don't, you know, turn in your tithe, turn in your, and he lists this corn, wine, oil, flocks. You know, but he goes also, your offerings, you do not get to eat your offerings in there. Why could they not eat their offerings there? Because they were only to offer where God set up the tabernacle. All right, so they couldn't create a whole bunch of altars. When you read the book of Judges, you see people creating altars all over the promised land because they're not following God and they fall into temptation and, and because they're not obeying him. You read the book of Kings and Chronicles and you see altars all over the place because they're not honoring God and God said, get rid of them. Don't, don't create them. The only place you're to have an altar is in my tabernacle. And that didn't happen. Isn't this more proof against the people who say they can worship anywhere? It's very much so because God wants worship. But by the same token, he has allowed us to worship. Now, as, as we've talked before, people will say, I can worship God anywhere. Yes, absolutely. You can worship God anywhere. They're not in most cases because if they really wanted to worship God, they'd be doing it with his people because Jesus said where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. And so if you're trying to tell me, well, I'm on the lake by myself fishing and worshiping God, well, Jesus said you need two for him to be there and you're probably not worshiping God while you're fishing. Uh, matter of fact, you may be cursing about how bad the fish aren't biting or or even swearing because you're getting so much fish. You know, it's amazing how people are when they're, you know, listening to people the way they speak. Uh, there seems to be, for most people, one adjective in their language, and it's, and it's not one that I'm going to say. You know, nothing is a stupendous or a great, great activity. It's all a, a word that we don't want to, that most people don't say, but you hear it all the time. And it's, a, and it's an adjective for everything, good, bad, um, you know, and it's, it's the only adjective most of our teenagers seem to know and young people know. When I'm at the prison, that's about the only word that's consistent across all of them and it's, and it's said of every third or fourth word, but the staff isn't much better. It's just that is the language being spoken out there because of not having enough education, I guess, to have some adjectives in your language. But here we see God saying, your offerings belong at the temple. And it is true that we should be worshiping together. There's great benefit as worshiping in as a corporate body. Number one, we get edification. Number two, we get some training in the process. But just being with people who think the same way is very important. Because it is, as we walk in this world, most everybody we meet does not think like we do as Christians. Do not act the way we do not as Christians. Do not speak the way we speak as Christians. They think things are funny that make fun of God and make fun of the things that he says is holy. So it's very important. I'm not saying that we totally separate ourselves from the world because if we totally separate ourselves from the world, we have nobody to evangelize. But our best friends, the ones we hang out with all the time, shouldn't be the world. Because they're going to drag us down, and it always, always works that way. That people get drugged down a lot easier, and they pull somebody up. Can you pull somebody up? Every once in a while you can. But usually, 99% of the time when you see somebody that has a best friend who's unsaved, the unsaved person isn't the one that gets changed. It's the Christian who ends up getting, getting changed and compromising their, their viewpoints and compromising their life. So very important. We worship God, we support God's people, we support his church, and we hang out with his people. And very, 
much what we want to do. And yes, we want to be with his people. We should want to be with God's, God's people. I can't wait to come to church to be with God's people and to edify and to encourage and, and be encouraged. I can't wait to get in and study his word and listen to, listen to pastors teaching his word to me because I need it. I need his word. If I don't read my Bible in a, in, you know, for a day or two, I feel starving in my spirit and it's a huge issue. And we need to be in that place where we go, I need his word. I need to be taught. I need to be with his people and just be encouraged by people who think maybe not exactly 100% the way you do, but generally the way you do, that God is Savior, he loves you, and, and that he has a purpose for your life. Because what does the world tell us? We're evolved and highly evolved animals that have no purpose in this life. And they will teach some form of that. If they're not following God, there's some form of there's no purpose in life. And I can't imagine what it would be like to live with a life with no purpose. It'd be miserable, which explains why most so many people commit, commit uh, suicide and, and get drunk and, and get, you know, blow their mind out with drugs because no purpose, no meaning in life. I might as well just vegetate. And, if I, and I've said, if I wasn't a Christian, I would be a Stoic. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die would be my lifestyle. Because if there was no purpose, I might as well just get as much, quote-unquote, fun as I can. But we all know that that fun is not fun. But at least you have a momentary period of fun. So there was no purpose, no God in life. That is the best option you have available to you. But we know we have God. And this is what I share with people. I know that I'm in a relationship with God and I know that he's real because I'm in a relationship with him. And I know that he's real. There's not a question in my mind that, it, that, I'm, that, I, that he's real. And then verse 19 was just after telling you to, to share with the Levites, he says, and take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. This is very important. God wants us to give. Now, with the church, I've always believed that the church should give the 10% of its money to some, some place to help out, and this church does that. And other churches that I've been have done that. And I call it the tithe of the church. I mean, it's, it's missions giving or whatever you want to call it, but I call it the tithe because, and I've seen God bless, when churches do that, I've seen God bless the church just as he blesses the people who give to the church. And it's just a way to reach out and if every, if every group does the same thing and gives 10%, you keep some of that move, money moving to different places that need it. And so, but God blesses those who are honoring the gift. And I know I'm talking to the group here that knows that, you know, because I've heard the testimonies over and over. Lynn and I have given our tithe over the years and God is blessed. Are we millionaires? No, but we know we've always had a roof over our head. We've always had food on the table. God has met all of our needs. He always will meet our needs because that's what he's promised. And by giving to ministries and churches, we're able to see God do great things in those places. And God is moving in the kingdom and we're getting rewards in the kingdom. And that's what I tell us in the church. You know, who knows what kind of rewards we're getting? We went out this last Saturday and passed out all those tracts and, and Bibles at the parade. Who knows what kind of rewards there are for that? Who knows what kind of rewards there are for the internet presence that we have. We don't know what rewards we have until we get to heaven. And then we're also going to see all the rewards for the little things that we did that we, didn't, that we just did because we were honoring God and somebody looked at it and said, I came to God because of what you did. And there's those blessings that we know nothing about. We kind of expect that there's probably blessings from somebody getting a track and getting saved, you know, because you can't give out the 400 tracks we gave away and not have somebody get touched, have a seed planted, eventually to be reaped by somebody, and we will get reward for that. We can't have the gospel going out the way it does over the Internet and not have somebody be touched and hear the gospel and have seeds planted. The way we live plants seeds to people, and it's amazing. We may never hear about those seeds until we get to heaven. If we're fortunate, somebody will go, you know, I was, I've been watching you, 
And it really touched me, and I came to God because of, of your life. But those are not usually the comments that we hear. Well, our kids will maybe be able to say that. My, my kids, as they're starting to go off and do their own thing in their own churches, are starting to realize how much they were taught by Lynn and I at home. And they're going, man, I never realized how much I lost because it was nor I learned because it was normal in our home to bring God into it. And they're going out and they're realizing that they know more than most of the people that they're dealing with in their churches. Very important. Our lives are an example. Even if we start late in life, our life is an example as in the way that we change. Very important that we get out there and we do these things and we, and we live for all of these things that are going on and say, I'm going to live according to the way you want me, God, and it's going to be a witness. We need to set a high standard for ourselves. And people will go, well, we're all going to fall. And you know what? That is absolutely true. We all will fall. But if you hold yourself to as high a standard as you can try to handle, you'll do more good than bad, and you will not fail as much as, as, as you as you would normally do. When people are actually being professionals, not just doing a professional's job or anything, but actually acting in a professional manner, they hold their tongue, they hold their attitude, they, they don't say the things that, you know, the first pop in their mind because they know that they're being a representative for a company or even their own business. But these are the things that we do. We, there's people who are professional, you know, by the, that's their job, a lawyer, doctor. But there's certain codes of ethics that belong to those jobs that really set them above their job. They are just professional. They act professional. They, they don't talk, you know, there's ways they talk. There's things they do that are just above reproach because that is what they're trying to do. Pastors end up being in that place. You know, you, pastors, because everybody looks at them and says they have way too high opinion of pastors, but that challenges pastors to live up to a very Christ-like standard and watch what they say, watch what they do. Yeah, and that's a great example because that's how I was trained when I was working for one very large corporation as a manager. They're going, it's more than just being in charge of the store. It's more, it is how you carry yourself. It's the things you say. It's the... When people look at you, you represent the company to them, and we want a good, clean image. All right, verse 20. When the Lord your God shall enlarge your border, as he has promised you, and you shall say, I will eat flesh, because my soul longs to eat it. Eat the flesh, you may eat flesh, whatsoever your soul lusteth after. If the place which the Lord your God has chosen to put his name be too far from you, then you shall kill your, of your herd and of your flock, which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you shall eat in your gates whatsoever your soul lusteth after. Even as the roebuck and the heart is eaten, so shall you eat them. The unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. Only be sure that you eat not the blood, for the blood is life, and you may not eat the, blood, the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out upon the earth as water. You shall not eat it. It that it may go well with you and with your children after you, when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to look at this. It goes, I love this, when the Lord shall enlarge your borders. It's not if the Lord enlarge your borders. If uh, It's not the Lord might do it, but the Lord, when the Lord shall enlarge your borders. As he promised you. This is God fulfilling his promise to them that they're going to have the whole land. And again, when we read the book of Joshua, we find out that they didn't conquer the whole land. They stopped. They did well. They did pretty well while Joshua was their leader. But as he started getting old and the people started getting old, they started deciding, well, we're not going to go conquer the rest of our land and then they didn't kill all the enemy out of the land which caused them problems later on but God said I've got the whole land for you <laughs> go get it he says I'm going to give you the victories you're not going to lose the battles because I am fighting for you because I'm giving you the land that I promised you and I've always loved good old Caleb he's He's 80 years old or so and he tells Joshua he wants that mountain over there which has the strongest 
nation in it. And he goes, God's going to give it to us, and that's the land I want. He trusted God in a way that most of the people did, and most of the people had hard times trying to take their land and didn't seem to want to do what it took to, to give it. But it says, in that place which the Lord God has chosen to put his name, well, if the place where the Lord God chooses to put his place be too far, you should kill of your flock, and the Lord has given you, and as I have commanded you, and you can kill it in your gates, whatsoever your soul eats. So we're back to that repetition. Do you think God's trying to make a point? Repeating, this is a, literally a repeat. Okay? Uh, once you have your land, you can kill anything you want, and drain the blood, and eat whatever you want. You don't have to go back. By the way, when I give you your land, and I give you it as, as I promised, you can go kill what you want, and eat what you want. And again, he goes, the unclean and the clean shall eat, and you may not eat the, of the blood. And here's where he says, for the blood is the life. You know, God says right from the beginning, the blood is the life of the body. When Cain slays Abel, what does God say? The blood, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. The life of the blood, the life of the body was in the blood. A man's life had been shed and his blood was on the ground. And as far as we know, the very first time that a man had died, up to the, physically died at, up to this point. The blood is, is where life is. And we know that now. For centuries and millennia, when somebody got sick, they would drain the blood out of the body trying to heal them because they, the way they thought was that the blood was sick. So let's get rid of the sickness which is in the blood. And it says, you shall not eat it, put it on the ground. Verse 25 says, and you shall not eat it that it may go well with you and with your children after you when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. When we obey God, we get blessed. We have the consequences on this world. The, the, we sow good seed, we reap good fruit. We sow bad seed, disobedient seed, we reap the consequences of those actions. And, you know, we look at this, you know, we give the tithes and offerings and God blesses us in return. We're obedient, and at the very least, we don't put ourselves in bad places that have bad, bad consequences, which is a great blessing in and of itself. But there's also blessing in doing the right things because God rewards them because it is being obedient to him. When we do things that are against his rules, uh, one of the things that is happening is all the extramarital uh, sex and, and free sex and hookups, and what are some of the problems with it? Well, we have, of course, the STDs, which are really bad. And, it's, and the largest percentage of our teenagers have sexually transmitted diseases because of their misbehaving. And the world has been teaching them, well, there's no problem. Go ahead and hook up with everybody you want. And it's causing massive sexually transmitted disease problems. For the women, there's a great chance that they'll end up pregnant and have to make some decisions in the world at this point in time is choosing to murder the baby rather than deliver the baby. So we have many issues that have to be dealt with when we do wrong or get the blessings of doing right. And over and over in the scriptures, God says, if you do what I tell you to do, you will be blessed. And that can be financial, physical, uh, possessions, and it could even be just heavenly blessings. And to me, that's a greater blessing. I want the heavenly blessings as much or more than I want the physical blessings because that's eternal. Those are the things that are going to be something that can last forever. Again, in verse 26, he repeats, Only the holy things which you have and your vows which you shall take go to the place which the Lord shall choose. And you shall offer your burnt offerings and your flesh and the burnt and the blood and upon the altar of the Lord your God and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out upon the altar of the Lord your God and you shall eat the flesh. Observe and hear all these words which I command you that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord. So here in this chapter already three times he's repeated do good and you'll be blessed. Do you think God understood his people? Do you think God understands us? 
Yeah. One of the things I have been noting the more I teach the different books is how much God repeats himself in all the books. He keeps repeating the same message over and over and over again because he knows that we as a people are thick-headed and, 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 and hard-hearted. That we have a hard time hearing him and obeying him. And he knows that's who we are and he keeps repeating himself. Do you realize how much grace there is in that, that he repeats himself? He could be the type of person that says, I told you once and you're done. But yet he repeats himself over and over and over again because he knows who we are. And he's so gracious to us to say, I keep telling you, obey and be blessed, obey and be blessed, obey and be blessed. Sin and be cursed, sin and be cursed. And then he tells us how to be obedient. And there will be no excuse. When we stand before God, there's no excuse. God, I didn't know any better. Because at the very least, we know that when we do things that are wrong and we know that they are wrong, whether we know the Bible or not. I was talking to a man who goes, well, there's no standard, no moral standards. I go, everybody, everybody has the same moral standard. We all know it's wrong to murder. Now, we may have varying degrees of what that means, but we know it's wrong to murder. We, everybody knows that it's wrong to steal. Now, you may think that you can steal from an enemy. You, know, you may have varying degrees of what you think you can do, but you're not going to steal from your friends, and you don't expect them, and you don't want to be stolen from yourself. You know that that is wrong instinctively and in your heart. There's many things that we know are wrong. Now, there's, we still do them even though we know they're wrong, but we know they're wrong, and the world knows they're wrong. Because you can't talk to anybody in any place that doesn't know that it is wrong to have your stuff stolen. Now, they may think they can steal from other people, but in their mind, it's always wrong to have their stuff stolen. Okay? I may be able to steal from other people, but it's wrong for you to steal from me. Now, it's kind of warped, of course. Some of the moral conscience gets warped, but it is out there. It's wrong to kill my family. Now, I may be able to kill your family. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? I may think I can do it to you, but I know it's wrong for you to do it to me because I know what's right and wrong. Now, God may, wants to stretch it. If it's wrong for you, it's wrong for you to do. But we all know that that's not necessarily the way people apply it, but they know instinctively what is right and wrong when it comes to them. And they may be able to twist it uh, you know, for outward, but they know what is wrong and what is right. So when God comes and judges them, he's going to judge them on what they know. You knew it was wrong, and yet you did it. And you violated your own, what I, the laws that I put into you. And this is why when God judges people, there will be no excuse. There are also people realizing that they can't please God and that they need God. And that is actually coming to God and asking for his help. Whether they know about Jesus, they may not know about Jesus, but they know they need God to be the one that gets them through. They're still working in his name, his reputation, his work, his power. And I believe that that's how they will come to, to know him. And if God needs to, he'll show up in a vision and show them himself. And this is happening in, in Muslim countries all over the place. There are stories of Jesus appearing to Muslims in a dream, saying, I'm the one, I'm the one you're looking for. Not Mohammed. I am. Jesus Christ am the one you're looking for. Go seek me out. And sometimes he'll name a missionary. Sometimes he'll just tell them, get into the Bible or whatever. But he tells them how to find him and say, you're really wanting me. You're seeking me. God will reach these people. No matter what, he'll reach them. Verse 29, When the Lord your God shall cut off the nations from before you, whither you go to possess them, and you succeed them, and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you be not snared by the following them. After that they be destroyed before them, before thee, and that you inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these na nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you and observe to do, you shall not add thereto nor diminish. Now this is an interesting section that, of scripture. 
The Lord says, when the Lord your God shall cut the nations off before you. Again, it's not if, it's not I might, but when I cut them off, when I give you victory, when you are victorious, we as Christians are supposed to live victorious lives because God is in control. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such it is common to man, but God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. He has got it set up that we should be successful if we trust in him. Now, if we trust in our own strength, we will fail. It's a guarantee because God will not let flesh boast itself in his presence. When he designs a test for us, it is a test that is designed to break us if we don't turn to him. And we look at what Job went through. Job's test was terrible and almost broke him and he ended up turning to God. And then verse 8, take heed to yourself that you do not, that you be not snared by following after them, after that they be destroyed from before you. Okay, so he's saying, don't get snared up in what the world does. Okay, how easy is it for us to get snared by the world? If we're not careful, our flesh wants to go after the world in the first place. We have the pride, of the, the, uh, the pride of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have three things in our own being that wants to sin. The things we see. And that's usually our first problem. We see things that we shouldn't see or, and really pay attention to things and get drawn into lust after that area. We see things and we go, I've got to have. That's the whole purpose of the advertising industry. Get you to see and hear things and get you to desire that. You just have to have it. You can't live without the computer hooked to your, hooked to your car and the satellite radio. You just cannot get there because a car, is only, a car is not for getting from point A to point B. It's for being there in luxury. And that's what the advertising tells us. Your car that is very good that gets you from from where you're starting to where you're going isn't good enough if it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. If it can't park itself, you've got, you, you've got a, your car is just not good enough. If it can't drive itself, you're not, you're, you don't have a good enough car. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the, flesh, the things the flesh lusts after. And that takes you into what we talked about Sunday, just sexual activity because the body has a desire for sexual activity as part of procreation, as part of who we are. Uh, that part can also be just the whole idea of somebody who exercises themselves and exercise becomes a God. But the pride of life are those decisions we make usually involving, I'm, I need to look good. Most people who get angry sin because they're angry about something that is done to them. You have hurt my feelings. You have insulted me. You have you know, made me feel bad in some way. And you, anytime you have the me and the I in there, that's the pride of your own, your own uh, flesh because you're trying to build up your pride of life. I, I am important. That's the sin of Satan in, in, in heaven. I will rise up to be equal to God. I will sit next to God. Now, he never said he was going to be higher God. He wanted to be equal to God. And that was the temptation he gave to Eve, remember? Eat this fruit and, you know, God has been cheating you. He's been keeping things. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, he wasn't trying to say you'll be greater than God, but you'll be like him. They were already like God. They were created in his image. They were given the ability to create within, within the stuff that God gave them. They had a perfect life. They were going to live for eternity, and they fell for Satan's lies. And Satan loves to do this to us. He loves to lie to us and say, you're missing something. God is, God is cheating you. He's not giving you the best. And how often do we fall for that? Almost every time, almost every time that it happens onto this. And he says, and you, and that you inquire not after their gods. This is something that I really talk about. And it says, and saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so, will I do likewise. A place that we have to be very careful of 
is looking into other religions. All right? And I've said, if you're going to do that, however much time you spend reading into their religion, make sure you spend an equal amount of time in the Word. And this verse is saying, don't even do it. You know, there's not any real reason to go study other religions. And it has this little caveat, even so will I do likewise. He says, they're studying on the idea that maybe they can practice. So again, though, if you're going to study, be very careful studying other religions. Because they initially sound good. They, there's a lot of things that sound good in them. They, they witness to the flesh. You know, oh, all I got to do is go witness to, to X number of people and knock on this many doors or, or give this much offering to the God and I'm going to be okay. I spend this much time meditating and I'm going to be okay. If you're a Muslim and want to be guaranteed heaven, you go, you go strap a bomb to yourself and take out as many if infidels as you can and that guarantees you heaven. We've got all these ones that are based on work, do all these works. You know, don't, don't drink caffeine, don't, don't uh, do drugs, don't, you know, don't uh, do this and offer your sacrifices and, and, and be a missionary for a year and do this and do that and you're going to be able to, to please the deity. We want to be very careful about all of these things. God is saying it's not worth doing, especially if you're doing it to try to, to follow after it. But one of the people that, I, that was very strong in this was Walter Marden when he was alive. He wrote The Kingdom of the Cults. He deeply studied all the different cults and religions and was the foremost authority on what they believed you know, from, for Christians. Well, at the end of his life, he was going pretty crazy. He forgot what he believed as a Christian because he was so judgmental of all the other groups that he was starting to read them more than he was spending time in the Bible. I'm sure he started his day out with the Bible, but then he'd spend the rest of his day, eight, ten hours a day, studying false religions or preaching to Christians about the false religions. And he was on the radio deciding, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is that, this is this. Very rarely did I hear him talk about what Christians were supposed to be doing. It was all very negative, and he got very judgmental of just about everybody, including many churches, because he was spending too much time away from God's word. We need to be careful. This word is all we really need. And this is what I've shared with you. How do you speak? How do you preach? Preach the gospel to a Muslim. We're sinners. We deserve punishment. Christ died for us. We need to accept him. How do you witness to a, to a Buddhist? We're sinners. Christ, we deserve punishment. Christ died for us. The message is the same no matter who we're talking to. And I don't need to know what they believe. I don't need to know how to argue them out of what, what they believe because the truth speaks volumes. The truth when spoken, will stand up for itself. The truth is, defend, is defendable. And if they try to destroy the truth, they can't. So we want to be very understanding that I don't need to seek after others. I don't need to seek after the religions. God's people did not follow God's rule of not following after the way they worship because we're going to find them very soon after they cross the promised land that they're doing the very religions that they were supposed to cast out completely. And they would leave people alive, they would go study about how they did it, and they would start those religions up all over again. Be very careful. Again, I want to hammer on this one. It is so easy for us to be taken away from God if we're not being a true follower of this. If we're not spending time in God's word, we're not spending time with his people, we will find ourselves eventually doing things that are not godly. Because there is no standing still in God's kingdom. You're either going forward with him or you're falling back into the world. There's no standing still. It just doesn't happen. 44 years of being in the church, I've watched it over and over. If somebody thinks they're standing still, they end up falling away from God. It just is what happens. You're either going forward with him or you're going away from him. And the way we go forward with him is by being in his word, being with his people, guarding our heart, guarding our life. 
Verse 31 says, But you shall not do so unto the Lord your God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have they done to their gods, for even their sons and their daughters have they burnt in the fire to their gods. And again, he's saying, don't bring their worship into my worship. And we're going to see that happen as we go along in the scriptures. There's times when their worship had been been con, con, uh, con, uh, polluted because they had put other things into it. Christianity fights this all the time. There's much of what goes on in Christianity that is, is part of the pagan world system. Many of our holidays have pagan influences that in their starting. And I'm talking about Christmas and Easter all have very pagan activities that are part of it. Now I realize that the people practicing those activities are not worshiping the pagan gods as they're doing it, but there's so much of their activities that have flooded into Christianity. And every time we get to the resurrection or Easter and people ask me about the rabbits and the and all of these stuff, I'm going, well, it's very easy. That's, the, that, that's all part of the worship of Estar, which is where we get the word Easter. Because that's the day they picked to celebrate resurrection is, is the celebration to Estar. And Estar was a fertility goddess. So chickens and, and, and eggs and all of the stuff is part, and rabbits are part of that, that way of thinking. And yet we don't understand how polluted much of what we do is. And I'm not saying we're going to go out tomorrow and change everything we do, but we need to understand what it is that's going on. Much of the Christmas activities happen from the winter solstice celebrations for the multiple go idol gods out there and have worked their way into the practice of the way we practice Christian, Christian celebration of the birth of Christ. Again, I'm not saying we're going to go out and, you know, that everybody should just go and not have a tree in their house or the Yule log or all these other things that are part of the pagan world. But we need to be aware of what we're doing and make a conscious decision of what we're doing and are we going to continue doing it just because it's the way we've been doing. But we need to be aware. How much has it been polluted? Much has been polluted in the way we practice in church. The way we do church service where the pastor stands and the people sit. That is not the way the Jews practiced, practiced it and it's not the way that Jesus practiced his preaching. If you read very carefully, Jesus sat, the people stood. And that's the way the Jews teach. Now they've changed a little bit over the years, at least in the two synagogues that I have been in, they've changed to be more like the Christian world where the people sit and the rabbi stands. But it wasn't so in the, in, in the Bible. When Ezra found the, the scroll in the temple, in their case, they all stood. He stood on a, on a platform that was built, and the people stood from 6 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon, listening to the word be read. And then they started teaching. They spent seven hours just reading the Bible, and then they started teaching on it. You know, that's got to be hard. Isn't it the normal in our day definitely in uh, the 1700s I can't remember which preacher goes it's going to come a day where people will not endure a two-hour service we're there oh, yeah. try to go over an hour and a lot of people are looking at their watch and like I got to get going I've been here too long well I don't know how I got that way but as much as I'm interested in everything after 40 minutes I started to fade we're trained our, our, our generation has been trained to have a 13-minute attention span. It's time between the commercials. You have about a 13-minute time, and then you have a commercial, and you have another 13-window and a commercial. For us that are older, it was a 15 to 20-minute because you only had the one commercial in the middle of the show, and now it's down to about 10 to 13-minute attention span because... We've been trained. But in, the, in, the, in those days, you went to church. For, for multiple reasons, you went to church all day. I mean, number one, it took time to get to church when you were at either walk or go on horseback. And that is where the bells for the call to worship came from. Most people did not have clocks in their houses. So when it was time for church, you rang the bell and you gave them a 20 to 30 minute warning that it's time to get to church. Once you got to church, 
you pretty much spent from about 9 in the morning to roughly 2 o'clock, most of which was preaching. There'd be some singing, but most of it was preaching. You would have a break where everybody would go out on the church grounds and have their, their little bag lunch, their little pail lunch that they brought with them, and then they'd go back in for till about sunset, getting a second sermon primarily, and then they'd go home. But of course, that was the only time you went to church, but you went to church all day. And there's still different churches out there. A lot of black churches in the South, you go and you're going to be there until 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon being preached at and singing. But they have long, long messages because that is the way they do it. But I'm, I'm just saying that all of this was to be said, you know, how much of the pagan influences have been brought into the church over the years. And there's a lot of it. There was a book recently on the paganization of the church. And they went, this person went through all the different things that we do in, quote, quote, every church that was not done in the early church. It was brought in around 400 AD when it became popular to, to be a Christian. And then he talks about how they, their gods offered their children in the fire. And we've talked in many cases that orgies were part of the worship of most of these gods. And God says, you're not doing these things in my, for my worship. Worship me the way I have told you to worship me. Do not bring their abominations into his presence. And these were really bad abominations compared to some of the ones that I've mentioned. And it says in verse 32, What things soever I command you, observe to do it, and you shall not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And this is that same thing in, Gen in, in Revelation. Don't add to the word. But, and here he's also saying, not just the word in this case, but actually how he has told them to worship. You worship at the temple. You don't worship wherever you feel. You, you bring your, your offering to the temple. You don't just create an altar wherever you feel like creating the altar. And one thing, when we, having said this, when we read in, in Samuel, they're building altars not in Shiloh. Saul offers, builds an offer and makes an offering. Samuel is going to make offerings. So even our great leaders in the scriptures <laughs> violate what God said to do. Okay? So this is, God has grace. God has mercy. And this is the thing we've got to understand. For everything that God tells us, there's great grace and mercy attached to it as well. But God is saying we want to be very careful of this. And this is why I say I want everybody to be good Bereans and study the word. Find out what it says. Know why you believe what you believe. Because I don't want everybody to be clones of me because I don't know that I'm teaching everything 100%, right? Because three years from now, I may say, God may show me that I've made mistakes. I want people to know why they believe what they believe. When I was in College Park, we used to, I used to have talks with the pastor there and then going, you know, we would talk oftentimes about the things that we disagreed with. And just talk to each other, not argue, not fight over it, but... He knew there were things that I didn't agree with him, and I knew that there were things that, I, that, he, did, that he said that I didn't necessarily agree. I was submitted to him. I knew that what he taught when I was teaching, I was not going to teach something contrary to what he did. Now, he also knew that if I was asked point blank, I would tell him what I would believe, but I wouldn't do it in a teacher's setting. But even for us as Christians especially those who didn't grow up as Christians, but even those who grow up as Christians, every pastor that you sit under, every denomination you sit under, colors the way you look at, at the scripture. If you get saved later in life, you've got all the non-Christian stuff that you're, that's coloring how you see everything in the word. There's certain places where you're going to see a greater and stronger point, like, like grace. Uh, somebody who grew up in the world and has lots of sin, had lots of sin in their life, they see grace totally different and probably stronger than I see grace having grown up in the church. And I have a deeper grace message than most Christians, Christians do. Well, it depends upon the pastor that you hire. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be uh, conservative or it could be very liberal. All churches are that way. Every church, no matter what denomination it is, but it really is true whether you go to a Baptist church or a Assembly of God or a Foursquare or a Pentecostal or Methodist or Lutheran or you know whatever it is, it all comes down to 
Where is the pastor with the message? Because any organization is a, will be a reflection of who is leading it. And I've said that over and over. When I go to a restaurant, I can tell you what the manager thinks about customers by watching the employees. Now, yes, there's an occasional one that's going to be good in spite of a bad manager or bad in spite of a good manager. But if you look around and these people are caring for their, employee, for their customers, I'll tell you that their manager cares about. But it is very true that for each church, they represent their, their pastor. If they care for the loss, if they care for the word, they care for re out, outreach, then you can look at the pastor is probably caring for those same things. And it's very much what you see. Or any organizations too. Whatever the whatever the leaders, at least at department level or higher, is a reflection of their leader. Businesses leader is a lying, cheating idiot. Then everybody in the in the business is going to take that tendency. If it's okay for the boss, it's okay for me to do it. And it happens in churches. If the if you're holding the word of God strong and heavy, and people will hold the word strong and heavy if you're holding and that's why one church is not right for all people because there's certain pastors that certain people are just not going to mesh with let's close in prayer lord we just thank you for this day we thank you for the opportunity to come before you lord we ask that you help us learn to worship you the way you desire to be worshiped and the way you ask to worship and we just thank you in jesus name amen